Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Janice Dean is the perpetually sunny face of weather on Fox News Channel's highest rated morning show, Fox and Friends. In her new memoir, aptly named Mostly Sunny, Janice reminds us of the incredible power of looking on the bright side in the face of adversity. Janice, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm very excited. Well, I'm so happy to be here. We are here at Fox News Channel in your very glamorous office. Cluttered office. I think cluttered is a better word. (laughs) We'll take a picture of what is what is happening in here oh let's do this is this is just too great clothes that have been here for uh 15 years (laughs) we're actually sitting in janice's closet it is my closet it's my office slash closet i love it i love it well i'm really really happy to be here and have been looking so forward to sitting down with you i read the book i love the book tell me why you decided to write this book well I mean, I've been here for 15 years, and over the years I've had, you know, I've told people stories of how I got to New York, the story of how I met my husband, uh, some of the not-so-great jobs I've had over the years. And as I tell these stories to people, it was always sort of in the back of my mind, you know, this would make a good story for a book someday. There have been moments that I have thought to myself, oh my goodness, is this really happening? Or did that really happen? And I think I'm just at the point now where I'm very happy with my job. I feel comfortable in my own skin. I'm going to be 50 next year. There's something about that landmark year that I thought this was a good opportunity to maybe do some self-reflecting, but also take my experiences and some of the things that I've been through and the challenges that I've had to deal with and write something that might be helpful to somebody else. Because during the darker times of my life, periods of time where I've, uh, you know, stumbled or fallen or tried to get back up again, I was always looking for someone or something I could read or watch that would give me hope. And so in a way, I think that this book is almost a love letter to myself during a time where I really couldn't find that hopefulness. You know the greatest compliment you could give me is reading the book and saying it it made me smile or it made me feel like I wasn't alone. You share with such authenticity and such candor. It makes you even more approachable. You're already very approachable on the air and I think people feel very connected to you, but the book really feels like an extension of that. And you get into some very personal territory in this Mm -hmm. book, which we'll, we'll talk about. A major thread that runs through this is this notion of optimism. And increasingly, we see research about the power of mindset, and particularly optimism, and the role that it plays in helping us bounce back from setback. As you've reflected on this, as you do when you write a book, where does that come from? Was it was this something that you learned or mm-hmm. was it hardwired for you? I think I've always been a pretty happy person. I you know, I've asked my mom that growing up. 
and I look at pictures and I can see that smile that I have today, even in pictures when I was younger. Now, I, I you know, we all go through challenges. I was bullied as a kid. Uh, I had challenges in my life, but I think the basis was always there that I, you know, I found the silver lining regardless, or I knew that the next day could be better. I think that you are born with it, but I also think you have to surround yourself with people who bring the best out of you. And I've learned to do that. I've learned to find happiness in the people that I that I'm friends with. My family gr- gives me great joy. So I think that I've just gotten better at weeding out the things that don't make me happy. That can be tough, though, mm-hmm. if you have people in your life, yes. maybe family members, Absolutely. who are not as positive. What is your advice for the inverse mm-hmm. when you have to perhaps sort of move away move from away people from it. that are a bit more toxic and less I positive. think you have to do the work on yourself. I mean, I talk about therapy. Therapy was very key for me. When I moved to New York, it was kind of everything, you know, it was like a rock bottom for me. I, I had chosen a job and taken a job that I thought was supposed to give me great joy. And it turned out it was the worst job of my life. You know, moving to New York City, I'm a kid from Ottawa, Canada. You'd think that, my goodness, I had, you know, I had the brass ring. Moving to New York City, working for a world-famous broadcaster. But that was really a very low point for me. And I realized then, when everything seemed to be crumbling beneath me, that I had to find somebody to help me through those challenging moments. So for me, therapy was a way of, you know, fine tuning with the way I look at life and why I was having such a hard time and why I was making the decisions I was making, Mm -hmm. stemming from bad relationships with men, uh, to the relationship with my father, to why I thought career was going to give me the self-motivation that I needed, the self-love that I thought a career was going to give me. And so it was kind of, I I had to rebuild myself from there. But she really helped me realize that it's okay to, you know, close the door on things that weren't healthy, including relationships as close as my father, you know. She helped me realize that that relationship was not good for me, and it was okay to not continue that relationship anymore. You have been very open with your diagnosis with Mm -hmm. muscular sclerosis. You were diagnosed 10 years ago. Why was it important for you to be so transparent? Well, I think I've always been one, you know, even when I first got into broadcasting, I always thought that maybe I was put into this job for a reason. Maybe it wasn't just to deliver a forecast or deliver a newscast. I always thought maybe there's a, a bigger reason for it. So, you know, coming to Fox, people who watch me here, they've seen me talk about being single on air and wishing my boyfriend would propose to me <laughs> at some point, to being very visibly pregnant and showing baby pictures of my children on air, to wanting to share, you know, the love of my life and the, the wonderful wedding that I had with, with Sean. So I think that I've always realized that watching television, there's a connection there, you know. I don't know the people that watch me, but I feel like they know me, and why wouldn't I 
talk about some of the experiences that got me here or the challenges that I've gone through because I think we're all connected. And I look to people that I watched when I was growing up and Oprah comes to mind. You know, there was more to her than just a broadcaster. You really felt like you knew her because she ch- shared the challenges that they had, she had been through. And I I love that about her. And so I thought if I was going to do this, that I, I wanted to also make people feel like they were connected, that they could see what was going on behind the b- bright lights. Because this is, this is a very sort of superficial business that we're in, the, the hair and makeup and the lighting. And, you know, even some of the personalities on television, sometimes that's not real. So I wanted to make sure that people um, saw that I am a a real person. So when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, you know, there was a time where people even said to me, don't tell anybody, don't tell your employer it, you know, that's not going to bode well for you. Your career is not going to move forward if you admit to them that you have a physical disability, a challenge. And so I struggled with that for a little bit. But I had to tell them at work. I don't hide things well, and I am not a good liar. Um, And I was lucky that I worked with somebody or work with someone who also has MS, and that is Neil Cavuto. And he's been here uh, since the very beginning. He beat cancer, and he's, you know, he has multiple sclerosis. And he came, he talked about his diagnosis and was uh, very upfront about it. So I feel he played a big role in me wanting to share it as well, because I was able to talk to him about the illness and my fears and how I thought maybe my career might be over and my boyfriend was going to leave me and I might see a world in a wheelchair. And he was able to sit next to me and say, well, I mean, that's all possible, but I'm here to tell you that you're going to be okay. So I feel like if had I not had him in my life, I, I don't know that maybe I would have been upfront and honest, but he really paved that way for me. And he's just a few doors down from here. So I feel really blessed and lucky that I get to see him. And I've been really lucky that I've had angels in my life, that real life angels that I, I can look at and say, that person helped me then. And that's why I'm here today. And he's one of those people. You are the mother of two young boys, mm-hmm. and you had to tell them yeah. at some point that you had had this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. How, how did you do that? How did you tell them, and, and what advice would you have for other parents who may find themselves in the unfortunate situation of having to share an illness with their children? I didn't tell them for a very long time. They knew that I had to, you know, I used to do injections every day and then um, three times a week. And my husband used to do it, uh, do the needles. And so they knew I had to do that to take needles, but I made, I was, I always said, well, it's to make me feel better. Sometimes mom doesn't feel well and that helps me. And I just never had the opportunity until two years ago. Matthew, my oldest, his third grade teacher was Mrs. Klein and she was in a wheelchair. And one day, Matthew came home, and we knew that Mrs. Klein had MS. I knew that she had MS, um, a beloved teacher at their school. And Matthew had her, and it was the, you know, it was the first couple of weeks of school, and we had to write, Mrs. Klein wanted us to write about our child and, you know, what she should look out for, their strengths, and maybe things that we had to work on together. And so he told me we had to do this, and then he said to me, 
Mama, uh, Mrs. Klein has something called MS. And my son Theodore was also in the room and Sean was in the kitchen. And I said, do you know what that is? And he said, yes, it's, you know, she said it was, it's, it's something that she has and will have for the rest of her life. It's the reason that she's in a wheelchair, but, but that doesn't stop her. And that's why she wanted the class to know that that's the why, why she's in a wheelchair, but that we all have challenges, but that it's important to just keep moving. And that day, Theodore had also met her in the hallway. So it was all these things that came together that was just this this perfect moment, a door opening. And so at that moment, I said, well, you know, what Mrs. Klein has, that's what Mama has. And, um, and you know, Theodore said right away, well, are you going to be in a wheelchair? I said, I don't know. That's possible. But would that be all right? And, you know, Matthew said, I think Mrs. Klein is one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. And that doesn't bother me that she's in a wheelchair. So no, I, I that's okay. And Theodore said, well, maybe I could get on your lap and ride on the wheelchair with you. So I realized that that was a moment that was given to me. Uh, and I wrote Mrs. Klein that night and I started the email with the beautiful things about my son, Matthew. <clears throat> And then, you know, I wrote, I just wanted to let you know that you gave me this gift of being able to talk about having the same thing and that being okay, that my kids thought you were awesome and that it was such a wonderful open door for me to, to discuss my illness. Yeah. So blessed. Yeah. It's hard to talk about. Yeah. I mean, those are incredible moments, and you include that exchange in the book, which is really beautiful. And I urge anyone who's reading the book or listening to the book, you you um, read the book in your own voice, which, yeah. as I told you before we started, I think is so incredible because you feel this connection to you as the mm -hmm. author and you as the storyteller. So it really is quite beautiful. As you think about this, because you are this eternal optimist, mm -hmm. What is the best thing to have come from this diagnosis? It's a strange question. Perhaps, no, it's not. It's, it's a great question, and I believe that when you have something in your life that is uh, a big moment that challenges you, you realize what the most important things in your life are. And for me, it's my family. It's obviously my, you know, trying to stay healthy for them. It's priorities because for many years, I really thought uh, my happiness was built on the success of a career, the people you hung out with, you know, some of these superficial things that we look to sometimes to, that think are going to make us happy. And had I not been diagnosed, I don't know that I would be as in touch with the basics of what we need to survive and and feel loved and I feel very confident that if even though I love my job if that were to end tomorrow I would I would walk out the door and be grateful for the opportunity but know that that isn't the thing that makes me the most happiest yeah. or defines me right mm -hmm. and I think this illness did that for me it really made me realize what priorities are yeah and in a business that is as superficial as television yes, absolutely. or media. Um, yeah. yeah and that's what I always say is if you can if you can know that you can be happy with the basics, 
then you've learned good lessons in your life. And those are really the, the people that surround you and who you love and who love you for just you and not the other stuff. Yeah. You now have essentially your dream job, the mm -hmm. job that you have wanted as the chief meteorologist at Fox, but this is not where you started. You did not originally start out in meteorology. So, no. And you referenced this a moment ago, but how did you get here? How did that, how mm -hmm. did your career path evolve? We like to talk about the twists and turns of our right. careers and the more diversified, the better, because yeah. it really shows people that you're not always going to be where you, what you start. Think, well, yeah. What you think, where you think you're gonna that's right. And I, I, that's what I tell kids starting out, too, in this business is don't have this idea of what you want to do. Like, I want to be an anchor. I always say try to do as much as possible. Be the person that writes the news. Be the person that directs the news. Be the producer that goes and grabs sound or tape. So I started out, you know, I always knew I wanted to do something in broadcasting. So I knew that at a very uh, young age. I took radio, television, broadcasting uh, in school. I started out taking journalism, and I didn't love journalism, and I quit within three months of going to journalism school because it's not what I wanted. My it wasn't my desire, uh, and I, I just found myself five years in university, and we don't get on camera or go to file news stories until the third or fourth year. Well, no, I want it now. <laughs> so I, I took radio, tele television, broadcasting. I ended up being a classic rock DJ for a number of years, and I loved it. And I told somebody this the other day, there's something very wonderful about listening to a story rather than seeing it. And I always use the, the observation that when my mom sees me on television, she'll more often than not comment on my appearance, like, oh, did you do something with your hair? Or I like that outfit that you were wearing. Whereas if she listens to me and listens to a story I'm telling instead of the visual, being a distraction, she'll tell me, oh, I like that story you told. It's funny that I'm in television because my love has always been radio because of that, that very reason is I don't like the distraction of people, you know, seeing what I look like or, or basing something on what they're seeing on television. Having said that, I love what I do. There's no question about that. But what brought me to New York was a radio job, working for Don Imus. I did that job for a little over a year and realized probably within the first couple of weeks that I did not like that job. But and that was more a product of the environment, Sure, right? yes. No, that should have been my perfect job. Yeah, you, it, you're ve you write very transparently, and you, na you name names and are very specific about what happened in that job. Yes, yes. So coming to Fox was kind of a way to try to escape that job and Roger Ailes hired me he needed a daytime weather person and going back again to when I was doing broadcasting in Ottawa I was a part-time weather person there mm -hmm. uh, not because I had taken meteorology but because I had met a news director that thought I was good on television that thought oh maybe she could do the weather and back then you know you didn't need the the background to do the weather. You are a weather presenter. So when I came to Fox and I interviewed with Roger, he didn't know where he was going to put me, but he, he needed a daytime weather person. And he knew he liked me on television. So when he said to me, do you do the, have you ever done the weather before? I said, oh my gosh, yes, way back when I did the weather. And that's why I also tell kids, do everything possible because you never know where you're going to tap into 
moving forward. I was able to tell him, yes, I did weather way back in the day right out of college. And he said, okay, you're hired. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if they do that anymore. Um, but it just goes to show you that, that I'm a good example of learning everything you possibly can and building on those experiences because I wouldn't be where I am today without, you know, without the, the small, the small jobs that I did. Yeah. You went on and got credentialing in meteorology yes. after the fact. So when I realized my job here was going to be weather, I decided I should probably be a little bit more legitimate than just a weather presenter. And I went back to school. So it took me three years. I did online meteorology courses with Mississippi State University, which is where a lot of broadcast meteorologists get their educational background. And then I was awarded the AMS seal uh, in 2009. So, and that's another good lesson is that you're never too old to go back to school and learn something new. So your career journey has been colored, let's mm -hmm. say, with at least two pretty bad examples of bad bad bosses, bad behavior, sort of different kinds of behavior, Don Imus being one, and also the late Roger Ailes, who of course was the chairman and CEO of Fox News Channel. The story you tell in the book about your interview with him is shocking. Mm -hmm. Tell me that with Roger? story with Roger. The, the job with Don Imus was the worst job of my career, and I endured a lot of abuse from him. It wasn't sexual abuse. It was just, it was, uh, you know, verbal abuse. He was a bully. And he did this with everyone. But for some reason, there was something about me, I think, that he, maybe I reminded him of his mom or his ex-wife or somebody he didn't like. Do uh, you think that was true of women generally or something specific to you? I think, yes, women. He treated women very differently than men. He treated men terribly, too. You know, the, the guys that, that worked with me were all quite nice, but they endured abuse from him as well. We all used to, like, talk about it in the hallways. and then, But no one would ever do anything about it because he was making the, the company too much money. So when I met with Roger, uh, I just wanted to get out of the job that I was in. And my Im first impression it was that he maybe uh, wanted to have an affair. The first job interview that I had with him was in his office here at Fox News Channel. You know, I don't remember anything being confusing or weird or awkward in his, in his office. I actually thought he was, you know, very funny and, and very charming. The second interview he had set up at a hotel lobby bar area. So this was the Renaissance Hotel in Times Square. And um, his secretary asked uh, to me to meet him there. And I met him there, and I thought it was a weird job interview place. And I remember telling my agent we were going to meet there. And she said, oh, well, maybe he just wants to meet off campus. So we met. He motioned to sit down. He said, why don't you get a drink? And it was, you know, it was after 3 o'clock. I'm like, okay, I'll have a drink. Uh, so I ordered a wine. He ordered a wine as well. And we just did some small talk. And he asked me how Imus was doing. He knew I, I told him up front I, I needed to get out of the job because he was terribly abusive. And then, you know, we made small talk and he reached over and grabbed my hand like it was almost a date and said, have you been thinking about me? You know, how, how, how do you see me uh, in your life if you come over to Fox News? And I just remember thinking, this is a weird job interview. And so I kind of laughed it off and said, oh, like a boss or a mentor. Uh, and, and I remember him saying, well, sure, that too. 
you know, but and then he said, well, but I really like you and I, I'm trying to think of a position for you. Just, you know, give me give me some time. And then we kind of wrapped it up from there. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is such a he asked if I had a boyfriend as well. I remember that. And I was dating someone at the time. So I walked out of there. I thought it was very strange. But my whole broadcasting career, unfortunately, I've had to deal with some sort of weird behavior from men or men in positions of power. So I've always had that like ability to laugh it off, make a joke, say I have a boyfriend. And unfortunately, that's the, I've been able to do that well. Uh, I've been able to walk that line. So do you think he was testing the water? Yes. Yes, I do. Yes. To see what you of course. would say yes. and how you would react. Right. Because later on, I learned that he was conducting these meetings in the same place with other women, and that was going to a different level. So I learned that later on. And then the third time I talked to him before I got the job, he called me at home and asked me how I was doing. And I thought he was going to offer me a job. I was pretty confident of that. And he, I remember him saying, well, Janice Dean, how are you at phone sex? And I, I, you know, I went, I went to the comedic side of me and said, I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and what did he say? He said something like, well, don't you do this with your boyfriends? And I, I said, no, I've never done it with a boyfriend. I, I, and if I did, I would be terrible, you know? So, but so then he laughed and then he said, call your agent. You're coming over to Fox. So it was just this bizarre, but at the time I was like, my God, are, are all people weird bosses in New York? <laughs> I got this one guy that, you know, treats me terribly, verbally abuses me. And th then I've got this other guy that wants to have phone sex. Oh, my God. But so, yes, I thought it was strange. But I always knew that I, I was able to protect myself and, and wouldn't so, go down that road. So it didn't continue. Well, when I got here, he would he would see me on air and then he would call me up to his office and he would ask me, you know, th it's well documented that he asked a lot of us to do the spin where he said, turn around, let me look at you. I never thought anything weird of that. He didn't I, touch you. He never touched me. Did he say anything inappropriate? Of course he would say inappropriate things. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, he would. But it was all, we all talked about it. Oh, it's Roger being Roger. You know, it's just the way he, you know, these men... Are, are like a throwback from the 50s and 60s where they could get away with it, you know. But I never felt like he was going to physically touch me or, or, or do any of that. And I also, in the book, wanted to talk about the good side of him because he did have a great side of him. And that is maybe his greatest manipulation is he was tremendously charming and did great things. So I would say within six months to a year after I was hired, those meetings stopped. I wanted to do more within the company, and as I reflect, I wonder if I didn't pursue other job opportunities because I didn't want to be put into awkward situations with him. Mm. You know, because there were t where there was a time where I wanted to do some anchoring, I wanted to be on air more in a different capacity, and I remember him saying, "Well, you know, we're going to have to work very closely together." You know, I. I'm going to let you do these tapes, but we have to be quiet about it because people will be jealous. So I think when I look back, I just thought to myself, no, I'm just going to stick with the weather. <laughs> you know, it's the way we dealt yep. at the time. Yeah. Would I go through that again? 
Absolutely not. Okay, so let's talk about that. What advice would you have for other women who, you know, unfortunately, these were not the only two high-profile right. <laughs> people no. that we have seen, you know, that has come to light, that have behaved mm -hmm. in these very inappropriate ways yeah. in the workplace. What advice do you have for other women, either at the point of an interview or more likely, I suspect, happens, you actually take the job right. and it's later that you are uh, approached in some way mm -hmm. that is inappropriate? What do you do? Well, like I said, at the time, we all dealt with it in our own way. For me, it was just the laughing it off. I have a boyfriend, you know, you're a boss, you know. Um, you all talked internally, women. You, yes. Women so my advice is surround yourself with good women. You know, have a little network of, of, of women you can talk to. Because over the years, we all found out about our stories. Now, we didn't know how pervasive it was. But we certainly all had a common thread of how he would act or say or do things. We never knew how awful it was for some. But he clearly had a method of testing the waters to see how far he could go. And unfortunately, there were people who, you know, took the bait because they wanted another job or they, they saw an opportunity and unfortunately went down that path. Nowadays, it's not as easy for people to get away with that, thank God. And I hope that me being here, I can be somebody that has a door open that a young woman can come to me and, and tell me if they're um, going through something that is not appropriate in the workplace. So I think you have to surround yourself with good women who are advocates of each other and will stand by each other and help each other um, because there is strength in numbers. You know, I also think it helps to have women in power. We have a fe female CEO here of Suzanne Scott. I feel extremely confident with her, and she's been very open with me. I mean, they let me write a lot of stuff in this book that perhaps other companies might not look upon as something that they would have approved. Yeah. You are very transparent. I, I find that a little surprising mm -hmm. myself, having come from a corporate background. There are just things that you, you know, probably the company would prefer you not talk not about talk anymore. About. Everyone knows this. It's well documented. Right. But at the same time, you're, you're bringing it up again and sharing your perspective. I so. think it was important for them to do it as well. Mm -hmm. They want to be transparent. They want to turn a page. And it was good. I think it was good for bo all of us involved that I was able to tell the story. They were... Uh, very supportive of that story and they were also very confident to say we don't do business like that anymore you know so and I, I feel for the first time in my 25 years in this business I no longer feel afraid and no longer feel like I have to go cry in the bathroom you know that there are avenues now that we can go to without having to be afraid that we might lose our job for saying no to the boss Let's pivot a bit. Yep. Because you are in such a high profile job at a time in which people are, unfortunately, increasingly comfortable sharing every horrible, <laughs> offensive, demeaning thought that pops into their heads. This is not everybody, of course, but unfortunately, a large population of people mm -hmm. feel very comfortable just saying horrendous things mm -hmm. on social media and through other platforms. So much of this misdirected anger it feels like how do you deal with that mm -hmm. part of this comes with the job I suspect it but, does but it's really awful 
I try to be as positive as possible on social media. And I actually think that has helped me a great deal. I don't see the hate, the mean comments like I used to. Listen, the mute and block button are fantastic as well. But there are times where I feel like, you know, a couple of years ago, there was this one troll named Joanne, who I talk about in the book, who, who commented about my appearance and it just felt really mean. She didn't swear. She didn't like, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a traditional mean comment, but it was, it was very pointed and it was, uh, why do you let Fox dress you in those short skirts? Your legs look terrible, you know? And listen, I know the body parts on myself that aren't like fantastic and but so it was mean it was cruel and I felt it and I thought I need to address this because there are a few things I want to address here first of all Fox does not dress me second of all um, I'm lucky that I have legs to stand on regardless of whether or not you think they're attractive and you can always turn the channel here are the times that I'm on in the morning but also because here's another thing you learn being diagnosed with MS, there are days where I could get out of bed and not have the use of my legs. So I wanted to point that out to her, that I am so proud of these big, strong legs, even if she doesn't like to look at them. And your comment was cruel and unwarranted. And so I, I, put, that, I put that out there into the universe and it brought good things. I had wonderful comments from people and I really thought to myself, for Joanne to say something, she must be really upset about something in her life that makes her miserable and I have to think that people that do that must be really miserable right. instead of being angry we should maybe feel sorry for them you know and so I go back to trying to mute or block or ignore and just continue to try to be positive and it comes back to you yeah. so we were talking about bullying but I also want to talk about constructive feedback yes when someone gives you feedback that's constructive mm -hmm. sometimes that can hurt especially when we're holding ourselves to a really really high standard right and oftentimes with women in particular they will focus on that you know 10% of areas of needing improvement versus the 90% of their performance that's really great yes so how do you think about this notion of constructive feedback mm -hmm. and how do you keep you know, feedback from sort of getting hurting. to you. Yeah, getting to you. Well, listen, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. There are people that go, I'm loud when I'm on television. I mean, I'm loud and I'm in your face and everything's great. <laughs> Hi, everyone. And I've had people email me and be like, you need to take it down 10 notches. Like, <laughs> You know, when you do a serious forecast, I, I, I appreciate that. But man, like you, you're like a five-year-old out there. And I just say, well, that's me. And if you don't like me, here are the times that I'm on. You can turn the channel or you can turn the volume down. I'm not going to change. I've been doing this too long. It used to bother me and it used to, I used to think about my performance but I've always been like this I've always been like this you know like I I probably overperform than underperform and I'm happy to be there I'm happy to be there with people and like I said no I'm not everybody's cup of tea there are going to people be people that don't don't love the forecast if you don't like my forecast you can go look at an app or when I first started out in this business I used to tape myself and I used to watch myself back and I used to look at all the flaws or hear all the flaws, I don't do that anymore. 
You know, it's just like, it's me. I'm going to be 50. You're not, you're not going to change me, but I can recommend other forecasters you can go look at if, if you want to. We're all friends in this yeah. business. So learning not to internalize things. Trying not are, to. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, the constructive criticism can come from my family, from my husband, from my kids. That's fine. That, that's okay. Um, but from people I don't even know, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Not yeah. going to change. <laughs> so you mentioned this big birthday, 50 and Fabulous, is right around the corner. And you are very transparent about your age. You are in an industry that historically has not been kind as it relates to aging, and I would say women in particular. Yeah. Have you thought about sort of what that means and you know this notion and the pressure to look perfect and to look 25 indefinitely mm -hmm. look i'm i'm always going to say do what makes you feel good if if you hate something about yourself and you've outweighed the risks you really want to have this done to make make yourself feel better go for it that's fine I've learned, and I did something a couple of years ago that I talk about in the book. I had this procedure that was supposed to be a in and out doctor's visit that I wouldn't have had to tell anybody, and it didn't turn out so well. I was off the air for two months. So it was this procedure that was supposed to tighten my neck, but without, you know, major surgery, and the doctor overheated a nerve, and it turned into a palsy uh, where half my lip, lower lip, was droop, drooping for, for, you know, eight weeks. I didn't sign up for that. Yeah. Uh, and I was very embarrassed about that. But again, I thought this is a learning. This is, uh, you know, something we can all learn from, especially women. If you're going to do this, there are risks. Know what your risks are. Talk to your doctors. Again, I had people saying, don't tell anybody. Just be off the air for two months and come back and pretend nothing ever happened. Some people do that. But I thought it was important for me to talk about what had happened, why I was off the air, how I did something that I thought would improve my appearance. And instead, it was, a, it was a, another great lesson that, you know, I almost lost my smile. The thing that I love the most about myself, the thing that my kids love about me. I almost lost my smile because of something I did to another part that I wasn't satisfied with. I wouldn't do it again. Uh, I'm not. I'm not uh, saying that I wouldn't do little tweaks here and there. I talk about Botox. I love Botox, and it is proven safe for now. But more than that, I realize that I am going to embrace my age because somebody has to, and somebody has to speak for all of us 50s and 60s and 70s. I met a woman who's 80 years old out there today. She looked spectacular and she had a wonderful attitude and I thought to myself that's what I want to be at 80 and I didn't look at her wrinkles or I just looked at her beautiful smile and her eyes her eyes said it all so yeah. be proud I'm proud of it do you think that's a way to begin to change perhaps the entire industry that is so fixated on appearance I hope so I really hope so. I hope there's more of us 50s and 60s and 70s out there. I mean, work work until you want to work. You know, I don't I don't know if I want to be doing this at like 60 years old, but I'm going to be doing it at 50 
maybe I'll do it at 55, and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. I hope you do it forever. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're all beautiful. (laughs) We are all beautiful. And I think as women, we really put so much pressure on ourselves. My husband always tells me the best I look is when I have no makeup on and my hair is back and I, you know, I'm wearing jeans. That's what he thinks is beautiful. And that's the most important, right? It really is. Yeah. I want to talk about your children's books. Mostly Sunny was not your first foray as an author. Mm -hmm. Your lead character, Freddie the Frogcaster, actually paved the way for Mostly Sunny. So talk a little bit about that. How did did Mostly Sunny come about uh, with the help of Freddie? From Freddie. So I started writing children's books uh, 2013, and I write about Again, a wonderful angel here on Earth, John Kasich, who used to work here at Fox News. He was a presidential candidate and a governor of Ohio. And he one day said to me, we were in the hallway, he said, Janice Dean, you need to write books about kids' books about weather because my girls are so afraid of thunderstorms. And it was like, that's a great idea. But it took from that conversation to probably about five years later of writing down ideas, going to different uh, book publishers with my idea, and finally coming up with something that a publishing house thought was going to be uh, worthwhile to publish. So Freddie the Frogcaster is a frog that loves the weather, and we've done uh, thunderstorms, we've done hurricanes, we've done flash floods and blizzards, and we did a tornado. Um, So I had five of those books uh, written. I wrote them and published, and they did very well. And it was a kind editor from HarperCollins that watches me on television that knew I had a series of children's books that wrote me one day and said, I watch you on TV. My mom loves you. I know you have kids books, but do you have an adult book in you? And I thought, hmm, do I have an adult book in me? And that's how, where we got to. So we you never thought about writing a book. I mean, listen, I, I thought over the years that I had stories that might make a b- good book one day, but I never really thought it might happen. But when I, the more that I thought about it and the more it, re- it dawned on me that I had some stories that might help people, I thought, let's try it. Yeah. 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 Janice, how do you think about legacy? How do you, how do you want, what legacy do you want your your boys, for example, to, to think about when they think about you? I don't need to be known as the great forecaster on Fox and Friends. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, I love my job. But I want to be remembered as a great mom, uh, great wife, good sister, good daughter. It's the little things. I write jokes for my kids every day that I put in their school lunches that I know they'll remember me by, you know, those little moments. I mean, I took Matthew, my oldest, to lunch on the weekend. and We had just such a nice time. And those are the moments that I want them to remember me by, you know. It's important for me to go see them at school if they're doing school plays or if they're in sports. I want them to remember their mom and dad being in the audience and seeing them and cheering them on. Those are the important things. The TV stuff is important too, but that's what I want them to remember me by. Yeah. One final question yep. that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. We ask for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a personal mantra. Yeah. What would be yours? Be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. Because people can tell when you're not. 
Yeah. It's beautiful. That's it. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Simple as that. That's it. <laughs> Janice, thank you. It was You're a real welcome. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. To learn more about Janice, be sure to check out the show notes on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Janice's terrific book, Mostly Sunny. We'll have links in the show notes and on the website. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of this growing She Said, She Said network of amazing and inspiring women, present company included for sure. You will always find insight, inspiration, and incredible examples of women leading and having an impact. Aww. It was great fun. Thank you. Thank thanks you. for being here. Of course. <laughs>